Welcome to the Play Tracing Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Ronda. This season, I plan to talk with just a handful of the interesting people who support play outside of game design and game dev. Specifically, I'm here to talk tools. Which tools do designers, world builders, and artists need to produce a game? What unique challenges do games face that make packaging and delivering different than other media? How do you even get a finished game published? What kind of tech concerns do you have to factor in? And the question that most concerns me, how does tech enhance your community's play needs? That last one is going to get a lot of airtime this season. For the pilot episode, I called in a favor. Eunice Alawi, who I usually call by his screen name, Kakaroto, is a good friend who's up for anything. So when I told him I was starting a podcast and wanted him on as my first guest, he said, great, when are you free? Eunice Alawi is founder and CEO of The Forge VTT, a Canadian virtual tabletop hosting provider and store. Before creating The Forge, Eunice has spent decades laboring in the coal mines of the free open source software industry. He discovered Dungeons and Dragons in 2018 and quickly got hacking. He's the author of the browser extension Beyond 20 and later created multiple popular add-on packages for Foundry Virtual Tabletop. As he writes on his company's About page, Eunice has an insatiable hunger for solving complicated challenges and creating infinite problems for himself. Eunice and I first met in the League of Extraordinary Foundry VTT Developers Discord server. Before you say anything, we know the name is bad and we joke that you have to take a drink if you say it wrong. The League is an open source community where people can collaborate on projects to enhance the experience of playing tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons online. All right, see you on the other side. Eunice, welcome to Game Tools. Thank you very much, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited and thank you first and foremost for agreeing to be on the pilot episode, especially since you weren't really sure what you were getting yourself into. What do you think you're getting yourself into? I don't know what I'm getting myself into. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. You have a whole career's worth of what you call hacking, but not necessarily yeah. hacking in the way that a lot of people think of hacking. So could you tell me first yeah. what you think hacking is? It has nothing to do with the black hat malicious hacker that we see on TV or anything of the sort. Hacking is finding creative ways to do something or making use of something that was not meant to be used in the way that you are using it. I've used this as an example in the past. If you're uh, at a restaurant and you are eating a dish and you feel that it's missing salt and you just add some salt to it, you just hacked that plate because you've changed it from the original intent of the chef to make it suit your own needs. Do you have an example that you could use maybe from your own experience? My first open source contribution was to uh, a driver in the Linux kernel that had a USB modem for ADSL when I got internet for the first time. It was working on Windows because they had drivers, but not on Linux because there were no drivers for it. I figured using a, a similar driver that worked in the same way, I started to reverse engineer what it did in order to basically inject the firmware on it as it boots to make it work for me on Linux. After that, I joined the AMSN project. Before we move to AMSN, something that I hear a lot in open source is how to convince new people to make their first contributions. 
you have to convince them that one, this is something that they're allowed to do. And two, to convince them that this is something that they are ready to do. People ask, am I ready to make my first open source contribution? Every time the answer is yes. But a lot of times that reticence to make their first contribution is what's holding people back. What would you say about that? I think if you wait to be ready in order to make your first contribution, it will simply never happen. You will both never be ready. And at the same time, you're already there. So you just have to do it and see what happens. Okay, thanks for that. Yeah, I agree. Now I'm ready to hear about AMSN. For those who aren't aware, AMSN is a clone of MSN Messenger or Windows Live Messenger, as it later became. Um, Microsoft hadn't yet bought Skype. It was the preferred way of communication for a lot of people in the early 2000s. And I was using AMSN to communicate with my girlfriend at the time. I, I wanted it to wake me up if she came online. I asked my friend, can you please do that because you're part of the project? And he said, you know how to code. So you do it and I'll approve it. I, I can't really do that. I'm not part of the project. I don't know if I can. And I had a lot of doubt and my friend was very adamant. No, I don't care. You should be able to do it. So just go ahead and do it. And I did. Then there was something else that I wanted and I did another patch. From there, it snowballed until I became a major contributor and the chief of project for like 10 years on that Amazon project. So. It's really about just not being afraid to make that first move and just go for it. Even if you have your own doubts, just go for it. You'll get feedback. You need to be able to receive that feedback and improve. And that's how you advance in open source projects and in life. I've never used it, but it's funny because I've looked at the AMSN website, which is still up and the dev community yeah. seemed huge. Huge. Was yeah. it a significant project in terms of user base or was that just for some other reason? I don't remember the exact details, but I believe we had new downloads of about four to 5,000 new users per day. And then when we made a release, it was maybe in the 20 or 50,000 downloads and then it tapers off towards that 4,000 to 5,000 daily users. In terms of developers, it grew and shrank depending on everyone's availability. But I think we were maybe 30 or 35 developers at one point all working on it. That's incredible for a messenger that I've never heard of. You're not that much older than me. I, I say this as a preface to what was it like collaborating in the SourceForge era? <laughs> because I have no context for that. And you say that you have 30 developers. I'm assuming you're yeah. all using AMSN, question mark. We didn't really use it that much to talk between us. We used IRC back then. We still have mm. our AMSN IRC channel, although it has pretty much zero activity. Most of the big developers that were on that project were still hanging out in that channel. But yeah, IRC on freenode.net was the big place for any open source projects back then. We used a mailing list for most of the communications. The SourceForge mailing list itself was taking care of that. So we had the AMSN users, we had AMSN dev, and that's how we discussed features, what to do. If someone wanted to do something specifically, they would volunteer or just send the patch and we would review it. I believe we were on CDS and then we switched to SVN, which was such a huge change 
but we didn't know yet about the awesomeness of Git because it didn't exist. So yes, I do feel like it was a completely different era. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, the tools were different, but I don't think it changed that much. It just makes things easier now and more interactive. There's definitely a lot of projects even today that still use IRC. So I guess that makes sense. It is interesting that you didn't collaborate on the tool that you were working on, but I guess group chats weren't so popular in that sense. Yeah, I don't think so. We had each other on MSN and we would talk sometimes. So it was mostly either for testing purposes or just because we became friends, but most of the project related discussions happened in mailing lists, which were all public. So everything was always public and documented and everyone could participate. So you don't have, oh, we did something and we just discussed it between us three and everyone else feels left out. So any big decisions or brainstorming had to be done on the mailing list. Even as that was ongoing, you said that you did that for a number of years. We moved to the PS Freedom project and yeah. PL3. So PS Freedom was a project that allowed you to convert your phone into a debugging dongle for the PlayStation 3 gaming system. So what happened is that there's this Chinese company that created a dongle. This was fairly expensive. You put it on your PS3 and you did some manipulations and it's cracked the PS3 and you could install whatever you wanted on it. I wanted to know how they did it. What made that dongle plug into USB and make the PS3 become like a developer a station? And I remember browsing a forum and someone had actually connected that dongle onto a USB sniffer hardware. They had the protocol dump in hexadecimal in the forum saying, this is what it sends to the PS3. I was so curious about what those numbers mean. And I figured it's USB, it has to be documented. So just out of curiosity, I went to look into the USB protocol specification and I start to decode every byte. I realized, oh, okay, it's displaying itself as a USB hub that does a sequence of insertion and ejection of USB devices at specific intervals. They were using a buffer overflow exploit in the kernel using that. My phone was a Nokia N9 at the time, and I could just SSH into it and load a kernel module if I wanted. So I thought if I can use my phone to connect it to my PC and it's used as a USB device, why can't I connect it to the PS3 and have it behave in the same way as the USB dongle? So that was just my curiosity, can it be done? And the answer was yes. I made a Linux kernel module that you can load into your phone to make it behave in the same way as that dongle. Then other people joined the project and they said, I have this Android phone, can I port it? So it's worse on this Android phone. Another person joined and they did it for their own phone. Yes, Freedom became a project that supported multiple devices. And instead of paying that hundred dollars to buy a USB dongle from a nebulous company, they could just use their phone, install the application and plug it into their PS3 and there it is, it's hacked. Kind of a leap that you did a little bit just now. Let's unpack that <laughs> difference yeah. between someone is selling a dongle that you are curious about to making your own freely available version of doing the same thing. 
Yes. For me, open source has been something that I've been involved in forever, basically. I mostly use open source software. And when I do something, it's generally always open source. I don't think the question was even asked whether or not it, I should make that into an open source project or not. It's, hey, look, everybody, I did this thing. If it's useful to you, have fun. And the reason that I was able to do that thing was because someone did, hey, people, look, I dumped the USB protocol from this dongle. Have fun with it. So the expression of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? I cannot do anything without using someone else's efforts. And I wish that someone else can do something by using the efforts that I did. It's just give and take. You're mentioning working off of other jailbreaking efforts. And as I was doing my research on you, I found this really interesting. There were a couple different outspoken hacker types releasing their own jailbreaks and bragging about it on Twitter. There was this somewhat notorious group named Fail Overflow. I'm not sure, were you part of that? No, I was never part of Fail Overflow. They are a rather small group of friends and they don't really participate as much with all the other groups on the PS3. They would help you out if you ask a question. They're very friendly and I've met a few of them in real life as well at, at different conferences. But Fail Overflow is just this singular group of, I think, four or five people that doesn't change. But from then, they released information that they had that unlocked a lot of the other groups to exist, to take on the information that they provided and reproduce it, doing the same steps to get the same jailbreak working and then going above that. It's, it's really interesting because the whole of the PS3 hacking scene could not have existed without fail overflows research. But Fail Overflow never released anything. They never even released the encryption keys of the PS3. They just said what method they used to get it. Someone else was able to reproduce that same method and get those keys. And someone else was able to use those keys and do a custom firmware. That's how it worked. But yeah, everyone has that to is, collaborate. That is really interesting. You tell me whether this is against something that you said in a previous interview. You were quoted not liking how other jailbreak scenes of the time didn't have an information sharing culture. Specifically, yeah. you were talking about a couple or maybe even just one PSP jailbreaker mm. who yeah. went away and all of their knowledge was lost. And you were like, I'm more proud of the PS3 scene. Does that line up with what you just said? It doesn't. There's a few things. There's some people who were very secretive about what they were doing for good and bad reasons. The good reasons, for example, is if I release this now, Sony might block my port of entry. So all the effort is wasted. I need to first finish a full implementation that can be actually useful by end users before it's released. That's to me, a very good reason to stay secret about the kind of exploits you found. The bad reason is I have this exploit and I don't want to share it because I want to be the one to get all the public accolades and fame. Some of the people were like that. There were multiple groups, some, uh, and those were a minority, were really in it for the fame, for the ego and not much else. And the people that I've mostly worked with have been the sharing type. Some would say, 
I'm sharing this with you so you can use it to help further the cause, but just make sure that you don't release it because we don't want it to be blocked. So even if the public didn't know about some exploits, the smaller groups were knowledgeable. One of the problems that happened, some people would steal other people's work and release it as their own or leak it early just for that fame. And that caused some people to be more reserved and stop sharing their their knowledge. So that was one of the big issues and one of the reasons also that I left the PS3 hacking scene. There was just too much drama. And the users were also, a lot of them were the entitled kind, where it's like, hey, I want to pirate all my games and it is your solemn duty to let me pirate right now. I'm not going to wait for you to even answer. I'm going to start to insult you because you didn't give me uh, my pirated copy one day before release. It's maybe a minority, but when you have so many PS3 users, that minority is very vocal and it just takes the fun out of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously that's what Sony was so interested in preventing when they went after George Hotz in that lawsuit. Do you want to comment on that? I think we could just tell people to look it up. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have a problem commenting on that. Yes. Okay. They... Sony are very protective of their, of their IP, understandably. One of the things that made the, the PS3 unhackable for four years was because they were open at the beginning where we had Linux access. You could install Linux on the PS3. It was all perfectly legal as part of their actual promoted features. And then at one point they decided, you know what, we had all our tax breaks now it serves no purpose for us to have Linux as an installable OS. So they removed that feature. It caused lawsuits. It's caused a lot of people being angry that Sony could push a firmware update that basically just removes your OS installation. Maybe you had photos on your Linux machine that you use. You were using it as a real Linux machine. Maybe you're a student and you thought, okay, instead of buying a computer, I'm just going to buy a PS3 and have both computer and so. Uh, a lot of people were angry and it also created the immediate reaction from the hacker community saying they removed it, but we know that it's possible to have it. So why don't we try to find a way to bring that back? The unfortunate consequence is that by opening the PS3 to allow you to install Linux on it, it's also allowed you to do things that they didn't want you to do, such as pirating games. They understandably try to protect their business by suing anyone and everybody who would have anything to do with modifying the PS3 in any way. I received a cease and desist letter. I was named in George Hutt's lawsuit. They tried to get PayPal and Twitter to give them all the data they had on my accounts. It didn't go further than that. You had representation from the EFF. Yes, the EFF stepped in and they provided me with a lawyer that gave me some useful advice, but I think they realized that they were going to just concentrate on George Hotz. And so they dropped all the other people they were trying to name in, in the lawsuit and just went for George Hotz because he actually did something that was legally gray because he released actual firmware, uh, the PS3 firmware modified with things that allowed you to install pirated content. Whereas I never released anything that was not my own copyrighted stuff. For example, I had the very first custom firmware on the PS3, not George Hotz, but mine didn't allow you to install pirated content. So people didn't care as much about it. 
but also mine wasn't an actual custom firmware. It was a script. It was a bash script that you ran and you gave it the official firmware that you downloaded yourself from Sony's website to just unpack it and modify it and repack it, re-encrypt it and everything, because I did not want to be shipping copyrighted material. Was the script yeah. PS Freedom or PL3? Neither. Oh, okay, sorry. It was called MFW something? Yeah, yeah, actually, I, I saw that one as well. So then yeah. what's PL3? So PL3 is for payload. That's what the PL means. PL3 is a pure assembly project. It, it was a framework to allow other developers to write payloads in assembly. And you, it's like a library of functions and things that lets you write your payload and then compile it into a binary. So if you remember with PS Freedom, we were emulating a USB hub where you inserted and removed different fake USB devices. And some of those USB devices had portions of code as part of their USB description. Instead of saying, hey, this is a Kingston flash drive, it actually was a jumble of bytes that ended up being in the, the right memory space that it gets executed when you eject the drive. And that's what the payload is. It's what you inject into the PS3 to execute it. And that code unlocks the, the PS3. And so PL3 was a framework of utilities and payloads that you could choose what you want. So instead of saying, okay, I'm just going to use this PS Freedom or this dongle to unlock the PS3, you could say, oh, I actually want to build a, a new one that does this and that. I don't need to have a virtual CD-ROM. I don't need this. Oh, I, I do want to have access to the GPU from Linux, but you decided what you wanted and you enabled those and it's built the payload for you. And then you push that to the PS3 with PS Freedom. You could also use those payloads with MFW to create a custom firmware as well. Before we move on, I wanted to touch on the Humble Homebrew collection. Correct me if I'm wrong. You created your own version of the Humble Bundle. Is that correct? More or less. That was the idea. But yeah. The inspiration. It, it yeah, the inspiration. Humble Bundle was something really cool that I loved seeing. And one of the issues we had with a lot of people who were saying hacking the PS3 is bad, they would say, you're saying that it's for the homebrew software, but there is really anything that is interesting to play. I wanted to make actual homebrew software for the PS3 that would be worth it. And so I gathered some of these uh, softwares from different people. Uh, I was also involved with the PS Lite uh, project, which was the toolchain, basically the compilers and, and the libraries to build your own homebrew. And so we made a bunch of homebrew games for the PS3. And I, I set that website where people would email to Sony, like a petition saying, hey, I am X and I would pay for homebrew on the PS3 if it was something that was available. It didn't have any kind of impact, unfortunately. The purpose was to tell Sony, stop dismissing the hacker community, stop dismissing the homebrew community. There are people in their basements who could actually make really interesting games and the users would pay for them. Here's the proof. Humble Bundle was one of the first, if not the first. Pay what, what you want kind of thing. Pay what you want, but more specifically, they were 
really strong on Linux gaming. Yes. As a result of the success of the very first Humble Bundle, they open sourced yep. four out of the six games from the original bundle, which was not necessarily unheard of. Open source games yeah. had existed, but to take a commercial game and to open source it as the result of a fundraising effort in which they raised a million dollars, that was unheard of. And then finally, yeah. it was all in support of charity. And mm -hmm. I don't think that had really existed to that extent before. And now you see it all the time. Yep. So really, that was a momentous thing that you were keying off of. And you mentioned that mm. each of these people who participated would send an email to Sony saying, this is how much I would pay. They were donating money as well. Yes, there was a donation that they could do. And then I was splitting that with the developers of those applications that were part of the bundle. Hey there, listener. This is future Anthony speaking. I'm butting in because this is a good point in the interview to explain what Foundry Virtual Tabletop is. It's a downloadable web server application written in JavaScript. It lets you roll dice, manipulate little character tokens on a virtual map, and keep track of your character's progression, and have your friends all connect to it. Foundry VTT has a mind-blowing API and module ecosystem, so not only is your favorite tabletop game already available for it, you can set up a virtual merchant with a virtual shopping cart, or teleporters that zip players between areas, or do super unexpected things like add a virtual novel interface layer to your game. Now that I've gotten the explanation out of the way, let's get back to the interview. Before you even found Foundry VTT, you grouped up with your sister and her World of Warcraft guild and played yeah. Dungeons and Dragons for the very first time. I'm guessing that you were globally distributed. Yes. Yeah. So that's how you decided that you were going to play it online. Walk us through that. How was that experience? It was interesting. I bought everything. I had set up everything to play around a table. And then I realized I was missing something that I wasn't able to find and buy online. It was friends. I, I actually just asked my sister if she had any friends that would be interested in playing D&D. And it turned out she did, but they were non-local. All the setup I did was useless. I had to redo it online. And looking at how to play online D&D, I found Roll20, which looked like a really great platform. And it is to some extent. So I learned to be a DM while at the same time learning D&D and learning Roll20. It, it was a bit overwhelming, to be honest, because there's just so much and there's a lot of stress for the DM. Am I doing things right? Should I have said this or that? Oh my God, I have planned this whole thing. I forgot about it until after the session finished. The normal issues that a DM has. But sure. some of the issues with regards to technology were with Roll20's character sheet. Every week we were wasting so much time trying to answer the question, where should I click for this? Or why is it rolling the wrong thing? And we played for about a year and every week we had these issues with Roll20. Then one of my players told me, hey, look at D&D Beyond. And I, I really loved the interface. It was so intuitive. I thought... I want us to use this. Can we use this? And so I started to look for how can we use D&D Beyond's character sheets with Roll20. I figured, well, it should not be complicated to click here and have the roles sent 
to the other side, but it turned out that there was no one who had done anything of the sort. I, I was sure that there would be, but no. So I figured, okay, I guess I have to write it. At that point, I had not done any JavaScript. I had not done any HTML. My favorite language was C and the thing I've read the most was assembly codes. JavaScript was a whole other thing, but yeah, I, I learned <laughs> to resolve you, that. You, yeah. You basically blew through my next three questions. I was going to say, <laughs> have you done any web dev to that point? No, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> and I think that it's quite obvious with you for everything that we know about you up to this point in the interview, you have some kind of frustration. And you say to yourself, I need to make this. Or because my curiosity got the better of me, that's where I end up falling down the rabbit hole most of the time. Were there any communications with Roll20 or D&D Beyond in either the first six months or the first year? I don't remember when I first had a communication with Beyond20, but it was maybe after a year or something, after Beyond20 had already became popular, but I didn't reach out. I didn't reach out to either Roll20 or D&D Beyond. I just like doing my thing and hope that I don't get noticed. Yeah. At that point, I guess you didn't have the Patreon yet and it was all open source. And yep. from their perspective, everything was cross-promoting both services. So yep. unless they yep. had any reason to believe that you were doing anything completely off base, then they were probably happy to have you do that. Yeah. With Beyond 20, D&D Beyond would be happy because more users are going to be using D&D Beyond for their character sheet. And for Roll20, people are still using Roll20. Otherwise, they wouldn't be using Beyond 20, right? That's why I didn't see that as being a potential issue, but I'm just like, I'm just going to do it. Even if I was going to ask for help, like, how would I do this? I always have this fear of asking a stupid question. So I do my research to make sure that I'm really stuck. And then I would ask the question, but during my research, I generally find the answers to my questions. I'm like, why would I even bother emailing anyone about anything? Yeah, that's funny because you said something in a previous interview from a decade ago. If there's anything that I can tell a new developer, it's don't ask questions. So you still believe that? I do. I still believe that. It's so counterintuitive because you always learn there are no stupid questions. That is true because it is a way for you to not get stuck. But I have found that not asking a question and finding the answer on your own is the best way to learn. It's the best way to advance and improve your own skills. The only thing is that you really need to be able to deal with the frustration and the time needed to get there. We used to play Pac-Man where you die, you go back to level zero. Prince of Persia, you die, you go back to level zero. There is no save point. So that's, I guess, how I learned to deal with frustration and just, okay, I have to go again and concentrate more and just get it right this time. To me, it's the exact same thing. It's a game. It's a game to try to find how to do the thing. And if I have to go back and start from the beginning, I will. The euphoria that you get when you reach that final level in Prince of Persia, it's the same thing with software. It's the exact same thing. You stumble on issues and you find a way to go around it or go through it. And eventually you get it to work and you're so happy. Google is your friend. Don't worry about it. It's part of the learning process. But asking someone for the answer, 
it's the same thing as using a cheat code. You do not get that same euphoria if you use a cheat code in a game to get to the final boss. So you are starting to get a lot of attention for Beyond 20 and you're starting to get a lot of users and then something happens and you wind up in the Foundry virtual tabletop Discord server, yep. but you weren't a user yet. So what was it that yep. brought you there? That same player of mine, Ozzy, he told me about D&D Beyond and he told me about Foundry. And so I, I knew about Foundry because I had seen that little video. It was still in alpha. It was version 0.2 back then. And I saw the little video. I was blown away by the fact that players can click on a button to open doors all by themselves. That to me was the killer feature, you know, but it was still in development. It was not ready. Okay. I, I don't really care that much about it for now. I'll have a look in a year or two, but then my players arrived in their Curse of Trout campaign into a map that was full of walls because it was a cave and it was simply unmanageable. Even you disable lighting and all that, it was freezing for like 15 minutes before the map does anything. We were forced to cancel our session and I learned that I was really bad at theater of the mind. So I needed to switch to something that would work well. I started to look at the alternatives. I looked at Foundry and I remember asking, how does it work with a lot of walls? Pronobis, as someone very active in the Foundry community at the time, invited me to their game and showed me around. He had one scene specifically made with a few thousand walls just so we could see the performance and I was blown away. So that's when I decided to switch. But I had one week to switch and I was not ready to redo all the work that I did on Roll20. I did not want to lose any of my content. So I started working on Roll20 Converter, which was not that easy, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So I looked at some of your earliest commits and you actually started with a Python script for the exporter. Yeah, that, so Beyond20 was also written in Python because I didn't want oh, to I learn JavaScript. That. Yeah, it was written in Python. It was being transpiled into JavaScript because at that time, my only experience with JavaScript was the uh, Watt video, which is a lightning talk that makes fun of uh, JavaScript. It's very funny. I've watched it a few times every year, whenever I feel sad, I love it. And so all the impressions I had about JavaScript is that it's a language that makes no sense. And the only purpose of that language is to make fun of it. That was the extent of my knowledge. So I did not want to learn JavaScript, but I Googled how to create a Chrome extension. And all I found was it runs JavaScript. So I was like, how can I write something in Python that compiles into a Chrome extension? And I found RapidScript, I think it was called. And when I did the R20 exporter, I did the exact same thing. At one point, I, I learned enough JavaScript because I had to be debugging live in Chrome and that was just JavaScript. It was compiled JavaScript, but it was still JavaScript. And I learned enough there that was at ease with actually writing real JavaScript directly. That's when I started my Foundry modules for Mission Viewer. That was my first time writing JavaScript directly. But yeah, Beyond 20 now has been converted to full pure JavaScript. There's no more Python in there. Yeah, I don't remember the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I guess I was just saying I found it notable that you had written a Python script to do this. And now it's a fully GUI process going from having your campaign in front of you 
to then getting it into a zip file that you can just plop yeah. into your foundry data directory with progress bars and everything. So that's where I was maybe possibly leading you. You did mention that your first foundry VTT add-on module was permission viewer. I thought that it was the drawing tools from Furnace. No, your, your, permission viewer yeah. was the first one. Okay. Drawing tools came later. One of the big things that was lacking that I liked on Wall 20 was that you could see which journal entries were shared with who and things like that. I did the drawing tools because it was something that was missing. It was part of the roadmap, but I knew that it was not a priority for uh, Atropos because there were more urgent things to tackle. I personally didn't care about drawing tools. I never used them, but I saw in the Discord channel, a lot of people wanted them. So I thought, okay, I have no idea how drawings work. I have no idea how Pixie or graphics, whatever. Like I just learned HTML to add a button into the MDB on. That's the extent of my knowledge. So I have no idea how this could be done. And that sounds like a fun challenge. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do dry tools, not because I want it, but just because I want to see if I could do it and to learn because it, it was interesting. And then I'm going to donate that code to Atropos so he could basically get closer to finishing his to-do list with the minimal effort that he would have to spend. So yeah, that, that was one of my first contributions to Foundry. The second one was I saw a lot of people on Discord complaining about difficulties opening their routers ports. So I thought UPnP would be a solution for that. Andrew wasn't really aware of how UPnP worked. So I figured, okay, I'm, I'm going to write the code for it and I'm going to explain how it works and show you like proof of concept to test it, make sure that it works and everything. And so I created an issue and donated that code as well to add UPnP support to Foundry. So your routers ports get automatically open when you launch Foundry, assuming that your router supports UPnP. So that was my other contributions. And generally it's just to save time for the moderators or anyone else who was on Discord because you answer often the same question over and over again, and it can get annoying, but for the user, it's the first time the question is asked. So they don't realize how annoying it's going to be. It's funny that you say that because if I'm remembering correctly, that's how we get the Forge VTT, your company that you founded and that you are the CEO of right now, because that's a lot true. of times a universal plug and play doesn't get the job done, right? Yeah, absolutely. The Forge was created to solve a bunch of issues. Foundry has a very specific way of doing things. It's very much geared towards self-hosting. And as much as I don't like Rollsway for various reasons, I think they did a really good job in terms of onboarding of users. It's very easy. You subscribe or you create an account, you have an invitation link and your players get access to your game and it's as straightforward as it can be. And Foundry is not that. It can be, it can be very straightforward. It could be as easy as launching the application and you get your invitation link that you share with your friends and it works. Of course, you need to go configure players, add each player, give them a password and share that password with your friends. So there's a little bit of a difference there in the user experience. The, the users don't just register and, and things like that. But I, I thought I want something that is 
just turnkey solution. You have an invitation link, you're already logged into the Forge, so you don't need to log into Foundry itself. It already knows that you have access to the game or not. You don't need to figure out how to open your routers. You don't need to buy a domain. You don't need to set up SSL certificates. Remember to renew them. You don't need to share your IP address with someone that you may or may not trust. You don't need to worry about possible bugs um, that could give someone unauthorized access to some of your files or damage your computer in any way. And I'm not saying Foundry does this. It's more of a concept of general security that anything can have a bug. The Forge could have bugs that, that allow something like that. We even see government websites that get hacked, right? So no one is immune to something like that. It's just, I prefer that it's someone else's server somewhere rather than my own personal computer with all my files on it. So there's that. But the original idea for, for the Forge came from if you run multiple games a week, you have to remember to return to setup and launch the other world for your other group. And I figured we should be able to easily detect that the player accessing the game wants to access a different world, shut down that world and launch the other one automatically. And that was the inspiration. I personally had only one game per week, so I didn't care as much about it. But I saw the frustration in users and I wanted to solve it. So I wrote that initial code, the auto switching of worlds based on the URL you try to access. That kind of worked. And I made that into what became the Forge. Would you say the Forge is successful? I would say the Forge has been extremely successful so far. Yes, I am very happy with its success and it's expanding. We are now six people working full time. I believe it's six. Yeah. <laughs> You're not yes. counting yourself as well? Counting myself, we are six people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Full time, either as employees or contractors. And you talked about all the aspects of Foundry's core experience that the Forge modifies. And sometimes it arises out of frustrations with Foundry, but is there also just a base need to design a product with you or are you coming at it from, let me solve your problems? I'm coming at it from two sides. The first one is I want a user experience that is as smooth as possible. So if I see someone asking, how do I do this? Then to me, we already have a problem because it's not intuitive enough. Sometimes you can't solve it for everybody because someone will just ask a question. What does this button do? If you clicked it, maybe you would see. But for most of the time, people ask questions that the answer is, here's this documentation that explains how to do this thing. And I'm like, the user shouldn't need to read documentation in order to know how to use the software. As an example, look at Beyond 20. We have about 500,000 users. That's active installations of Beyond 20, 500,000 users. And we get maybe one or two messages on our Discord per week. If I didn't try to make Beyond 20 work as intuitively as possible, then I would not be able to do the Forge because I would be spending all my time trying to answer these questions. I love that Beyond 20 is self-sustainable because there's very little maintenance that needs to be done on it. I would like to see the same thing with the Forge or with Foundry, where people know exactly how to use the product. So a lot of the features that we do for the Forge is to solve that specific issue, making the user experience 
as straightforward, as turnkey as possible without sacrificing any of the functionality of those. We built the forge on three main concepts, which was convenience, security, and performance. I think for the most part, for this pilot episode, we're going to see a lot of users of Foundry Virtual Tabletop already. Those are going to be a good number of our audience. But for those who are only familiar with Roll20 or are even only familiar with the basic concept of tools to play Dungeons and Dragons online using a map or using virtual dice, it's going to sound strange to them that you are putting a lot of emphasis on security and bugs, thinking that perhaps that's the sole responsibility of Foundry Virtual Tabletop. We both know that the Foundry Virtual Tabletop software is very modular and allows you to do lots of things as a third-party developer that basically no other game tool that I'm aware of allows you to do that isn't Unity or Unreal Engine or something like that. Would you say for the most part that's correct? Yeah. So really what sets Foundry Virtual Tabletop apart and even the fact that you're able to do the forge at all is that modularity and the ability to do with the software what you want as a developer or in your case as a software host. Yeah. Um, I, I think Foundry's modular concept, the API of Foundry is its best feature because it's where you can see a lot of time is spent and a lot of effort to make it usable, to make it beautiful, to make it cohesive. And before I started Forge, I think I, I had reached 13 modules for Foundry. But yeah, like a lot of the issues that I found with Foundry, or not necessarily issues, but more like features that I wanted, I was able to enhance and improve upon them with modules. That was the biggest thing that I found attractive in Foundry because it took over the, it's fun to play D&D and it became, it's fun to be able to make that software work the way I want it to. I think the fact that the Forge is a hosting provider or a platform that is built around Foundry is a, a little different. We really build on the outside rather than on the inside. But I think it's more about the concept of the hosting freedom. The self-hosted aspect of Foundry, which is one of the core concepts that Tropos wanted for his product, that made us able to do all of this. So actually, I was hoping to kind of transition into the League of Foundry Developers. I'm sorry, I have to take a drink. It's the League of Extraordinary Foundry VTT Developers. Exactly. That time I got it right. And because you were already in that early development community for Foundry VTT, you were involved in the early league, as it were. I guess I'll just say here, it seems pretty obvious that if a hacker group was forming out of the Foundry community, that you would want to be part of it. Is that what it felt like at the time? Or was it just another place to chat about Foundry development? It was a bit of both. When I started on Foundry, there were maybe 20 modules total. We were not that many developers, but it, it grew and grew. And back then I was also following up every day on every single message on Discord in the Foundry server, 
And at one point, it became a bit overwhelming. And then there was the leagues, the League of Extraordinary Foundry VTT Developers Discord that was created. And it was a much lower number of messages. So it was much easier to have these conversations with my fellow developers in that Discord. It was just like a little smaller place that was more intimate and more familiar and more a place to chill, basically. And then somehow I found myself as being one of the administrators uh, of the league. Yeah. Something that always like struck me is the spirit of collaboration there. And one of the things that sets the forge apart is the bazaar and its API yes. and collaboration with the League of Foundry developers had something to do with that. So tell us more about that. Tell us more about Absolutely. the collaboration there. Absolutely. The bazaar was created as a way to simplify a lot of the work being done on the forge in the back end and also to save space to the users because I didn't see the point of having duplicate files when everyone was installing the exact same modules or same systems, etc. And it became a repository of all the modules that exist. That content, that information is useful to others. And when I created the API for it, I was communicating with the Foundry Hub developers so we could have an API that would be used by the Forge itself, but also that could be used by others. In the same way, when we built the UI for the Bazaar to browse all that content, and we wanted to see screenshots and cover images and things like that, we discussed and collaborated on what became the Manifest Plus specification to allow developers to define extra attributes in their modules or systems that can make them more uh, visually appealing to a user browsing something like the Bazaar or Foundry Hub as well. You mentioned before that you weren't asking for becoming one of the leaders of the League of Foundry Developers. You weren't expecting it, but I think that certainly plays a role. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah. One of the things about the League that I love the most is that it's my touchstone to reality. It's what kept me sane for uh, a while because I became the accidental entrepreneur. I became the developer who suddenly became a CEO of a company with a ton of responsibility, a ton of work and doing a lot of stuff that needs to be done for a company to function that isn't necessarily related to software development. And so my escape pod was the leak. It was where I could participate, help out and feel like I'm being part of a community and I am still a software developer. I didn't get lost in that ocean of administrative tasks. And also knowing that I have friends in the community that I can still talk to. You being one of them, you have helped me keep my sanity for a while as well. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate our friendship and I appreciate the league being the vehicle through which people can make friendships just by helping out, collaborating together, talking about fun stuff, talking about games and talking about software. One last thing, you mentioned that around the time that you started collaborating with other folks, 
there were only 20 different modules. Even at that time, there were people working on a lot of the same stuff. And that's one thing that Cody Svendrowski, the founder of the League of Foundry Developers, that kind of ticked him off a little bit and caused him to create this community for people to collaborate and not do duplicate work. It's similar to something you said earlier about waste. Now there are, I want to say, 1600 different add-on modules, and there are 120 different game systems for Foundry Virtual Tabletop. Even some of those game systems are duplicates of each other. Some of them are forks that are actually forked from one system to another game. There's just so much. The bizarre, yeah. maybe you have a little bit of a grasp on it because of the bizarre, or maybe because of some customer support that you're doing, but then also because of the league, just there's maybe, I want to say 2,600 members of the Discord server, and I want to say maybe 700 of them have self-assigned the role of developer. Then where does that leave the state of collaborating on this platform? Or where does that leave the state of open source on this platform? I like very much how the very first people who wrote uh, modules for Foundry were doing them as open source software. The newcomers would use those as templates and they would keep the same licensing and they would follow in the same footsteps as those who came before and keeping everything as open source. That allowed the repository of knowledge to grow very fast, you would probably not have been able to have such a huge community if everyone was their own island. Most of the things that you want to do, you probably can think of a module that does something similar. And so you can just look at how they achieve it and it could unlock you. And that boosts the speed at which these modules are growing. That's what makes it so big and so amazing. Yeah. And I think I was the most, if not the first, the most emphatic in saying that the League of Extraordinary Foundry VTT developers is an open source community. It can't exist without open source. The collaboration nature of the work that is done there is impossible without open source. There's a little bit of a social contract that says, if you do this with me, then we'll both be respectful towards one another. And now there's a code of conduct actually making that explicit. I mean, at its core, open source is all about sharing. And when you're playing tabletop role-playing games, you are creating something with your players. So you're already in that kind of sharing mentality because you're collaborating to create a living world with your players. So we are unfortunately out of time, but before I uh, let you go, there's one last mini segment that we're going to cover, which is a spotlight. We get to spotlight any kind of tool that we think could use a little bit more recognition and something theoretically that we haven't talked about over the course of the interview. Eunice, do you have anything that you would like to spotlight today? Yeah, sure. There's so much that I can talk about. I'll put the spotlight on a little GitHub project called Hackathon Starter. 
which is a uh, boilerplate repository for Node.js web applications. When I started with the Forge, I had no idea how it was going to be built. I went with Node.js and that repository was what allowed me to start my project. It has a very extensive readme that tells you how to get up a basic web application. Excellent. So I have a spotlight as well, and I'd like to spotlight Level Design Toolkit, which you can find at ldtk.io. It's an open source 2D video game map editor that supports both sidelong and top-down perspectives. It comes preloaded with art assets, and the maintainer just announced a feature release called Super Simple Export that he says is ideal for game jammers and new users. So it's the best time to try it if you haven't. All right. Thank you so much, Eunice. Thank you as well. It's been my pleasure. Listeners, that's the very first episode of Play Tracing in the Bag. Thanks so much to you, early Play Tracing listener, for checking out our pilot episode. And thanks to MJ O'Neill for graciously lending the use of her song, After Ghosts. You can subscribe to her music at mjoneal.bandcamp.com. We're sharing more stories about game tooling in our weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for at playtracing.com. And subscribe to the podcast feed right now to catch a new episode every month. See ya. Bye. Bye.